or if you've uh, visited or you're visiting, we have a gift for you. That's in the back as well. You can grab that on your way out. Um, and uh, when I say visiting, I mean maybe you've been here a handful of times. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've been here consistently for six months. But if you haven't grabbed that gift, it is for you. So we want you to do that. Uh, I want to uh, introduce a few things happening this fall. I know it's still summer. We're enjoying that. She's not, she's not enjoying this. We do have a cry room over here in the corner, as well as a family room. Junior high is meeting next door as well, if you didn't know that. Um, moving on, I introduced these things last week, so I'm going to go through them rather quickly um, because there's just a lot. Everything I'm going to say is on our app. You can register for things on our app. Most of the things of what I'm going to share, you do register for. So some of them cost money, some of them are free. But overall, we just want to know who's going to be there and have a good idea. And we want to make sure we have enough books and supplies and whatever we need for those of you coming to the different events. The first one coming up in a couple weeks is our Awana program that kicks off on uh, the day after Labor Day. This is Tuesdays at 5.30. We do want you to register your child for this. Um, you can just show up. Ben didn't want me to say that. But we would prefer you to register because that will give us an idea of how many children are going to be there. That's in two weeks. Uh, that same week or the week after, we have our men's barbecue. I mentioned this last week. It's on a Saturday, and uh, it is off-site. The address is on the slide. Marley, men's barbecue. <laughs> there it is. The address is on the slide there, and uh, information is also through Mike Harrison. We have a sign-up sheet for that as well. Uh, something else happening the next day, we have our new to SBC class. That when, I, when I say new to SBC, um, this is against people that maybe have just come the last month or if you've come the last couple of years because we haven't had a class like this in a while. And this is a one-time uh, opportunity to just get connected, meet your leaders, and it's during second service. Uh, on uh, September 11th. The week after that, we start up our Fundamentals of the Faith class. Um, John Drollinger talked about this last week. And uh, this is also is a free class. It's also during second service uh, on when it starts up. And we do have books for you. We're going to be going through some books with John MacArthur. <clears throat> and so we want you to register for that as well so we can make sure we have enough books. Then, if you didn't go to any of those things... You can then attend our financial peace class, which also is uh, starting up that same week or the next week, actually. Uh, Pastor Wayne is going to be leading this. And if you're not familiar with this program, just go on the app and get familiar with it. Uh, that next day, if you are female, hopefully you're headed your way down to Zephyr Point because we uh, are having our women's retreat. That's right. This women's retreat is capped at 54 women, which I think we have more of. So if you want to secure your spot, definitely get online, register, sign up in the back, grab your registration form, and put your deposit down, and that secures your spot uh, for our women's retreat. Uh, the last thing I want to mention that I did not mention yet last week is our women's mentoring program. Um, it's called Titus II. It's out of Titus II, where it's a call for older women to mentor younger women. Um, it kicks off in October, on October 6th there that you can see. Um, it is, however, an off-site thing. We meet in uh, women's homes and so forth. You're meeting as a group um, to be mentored, but it's also uh, building, of, building you up to also be a mentee. 
And so if, whether you want to be a mentor to someone or you want to be mentored to someone or be, a me- be mentored, then you can sign up for that too. All right, here we, get, here, here we go in uh, the Book of Mark with Pastor Jesse. I, you know, every now and then, just the way my mind works, I'm sitting here watching the announcements and I'm looking at all the screens and I, um, everyone catch the irony that the Financial Peace University gal is holding a student debt free sign. <laughs> I just think, I don't know, I just think it's funny. I guess not all of us share the same sense of humor. It's okay. Um, welcome. Uh, as Amy said, I'm, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the team here and we're in Mark chapter eight. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Um, If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of the guys would gladly hand you uh, a Bible. I just want to share a couple things in addition to that. One is uh, the first one, in addition to all these other deals that we're doing, uh, at the end of September, September 27th, I'll be starting a leadership class for those who are leaders and want to grow in their leadership or those who uh, wonder or are wondering what it would be like to be a leader and you want to be trained in that way, I'll be teaching this on Tuesday evenings at Andy Finch's house. Uh, that's the location of that particular study on Tuesday night. Uh, so make note of that. And then a few weeks ago, <clears throat> we did our, uh, our our baptism event, had a uh, big old event there. And uh, one of the guys in the church made a video of the baptism and of that day. I know some of you weren't there, so this is going to be an opportunity for you to see what that was like and to celebrate. And this video, I've watched it so many times, and my, my emotions well up every time I watch it because everything that I love about our church is kind of highlighted in this video, just the fun, the life, uh, the, the, the kids, uh, the food, the baptisms, the gospel. So let's watch, tune in, check this out. about baptism and when we enter into the water with baptism and proclaiming that baptism what we're ultimately doing is communicating to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has lived the perfect life that we need necessary for salvation that Jesus died the death that we rightly deserve and that all of our sins were placed in the grave with Christ forever and ever and ever, never to be brought in front of God's face again. 
never to be thrown in your face again. It is a proclamation that Jesus is still alive. We, uh, in the probably last six months, we've seen about 50 individuals proclaim to give their life to Christ. 33 baptisms. Our church has continued to grow, and uh, yeah, we're, we're thankful for it. <clears throat> so, on the heels of showing this video, it was kind of fun. I had it in the office, and I was blaring the music, and and our youth pastor, Caleb, he came in and he, he was watching. He goes, I haven't seen this yet. And he watched, I think he caught the last like half of it. And he's watching. And as we're watching it, he goes, I want to go to that church. Like, <laughs> Good news, you do. Uh, and then um, I also shared with the staff, you know, the, the graciousness and the goodness of God. That God is good and he's gracious to his church. And he has shared with us. He has expressed with us. If you love me. You'll obey my commands. And the church's job, the, the, the role of the church is to continue in obedience and love to Christ to preach the gospel and to preach the word of God from the word of God unapologetically in a world that is continually growing uh, against what the word shares. And so we rejoice and we say to our Savior, thank you for being gracious to our church. But then at the same time, what I shared with the staff is we're not done there's still more people that Jesus wants to bring to himself. There are still more of us that Christ desires to help shape and mold us and help us grow closer to him. And so we don't want to sit down and just say, oh, we're, we're so great and we're so awesome and all of that. I mean, God's good to us, but we've got more work to do. Amen? And so don't grow lazy. Don't, don't grow content in doing good. I know there's a verse that says don't grow weary. There's also don't grow content. Last night was really uh, fun. We went to the rodeo, and Deborah, who does worship here, she did the, the national anthem for the rodeo. It was really cool because when they, when they did it, they gave Sierra Bible Church a shout-out. They let everyone know that Deborah was from our church. So uh, I expect a few more cowboys over the coming weeks to come to church here, hopefully. Um, and while I was sitting there, uh, one of the guys that goes to our church has been here for a few years. He just said, hey, man, I, and I hear this a lot. Uh, I have never been part of a church as healthy as this. And, and that is always a, a, a I'm, I'm very humbled to hear those kind of things, but I just don't want it to be lost on what God is doing here, to be thankful for it. And we know that God's continually doing good things in and through us, and he wants to continue to do more. So let's continue to pray for that. Amen? 
Um, so this morning, the, the title of the message this morning is May Your Eyes, or May Eyes Be Opened. Uh, it seems that throughout this uh, gospel, the, the disciples are continually struggling to understand, well, what is it that Jesus is teaching? What is it that he's saying? In fact, I would actually add to that and say it more than the confusion of what he's saying, they're confused about who he is. They're not understanding who Jesus is. In fact, the last verse, if you just go back to where Brad Beers ended last week when he preached, this last verse in verse 31, just a few words, Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? They don't get it. Uh, and then on the heels of that, we'll read here in just a few moments, a man from Bethsaida is healed from his blindness. Uh, and so we are going to see this man healed in this particular place and then the lessons that Jesus has for us that are teased out of it. So uh, if you can this morning, because we just want to position our hearts and our minds according to the word to get ourselves ready to hear from him, uh, I would invite you, if you're able to this morning, to stand with me as we read from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is where we want to be this morning, Lord. Open our eyes. Help us to focus not on the things of man, but on the things of God. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you again to be seated. Okay. If you enjoy tattooing your Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and pull out your pen or your highlighter, or whatever it is that you use. Maybe you do it digitally. And right around verse... Mm, let's say at the end, verse 27-ish, maybe a little earlier. Uh, this is considered what theologians call the continental divide. Uh, it's a way to describe that basically the point in which we are at this morning is a pivoting point. Up until this point, Jesus has focused mainly on the multitudes. His ministry has been very public. Now we will see a shift in chapter 8, and he will begin to take his disciples off to the side, and the rest of this gospel will focus not so much on the multitudes and the crowds, but more so on the disciples, those who were following Jesus closely. 
Why? For their instruction, for their teaching. Uh, in fact, I think some of them called this, uh, some theologians call this the, the, uh, the disciples' discourse, that Jesus essentially is going to be teaching them everything that they need to kind of know and learn up until the point of his death, resurrection, and then his ascension. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever thought about your own eyesight, but if you're my age, I'm right now at that age, so, so is uh, another person that I live with. I won't tell you who that is. You can make a guess. But when I open my Bible now, even on Sunday mornings, it's becoming a little bit more clear to me that I am at some point soon going to need a larger font in my Bible. My eyesight has never been good, thus the glasses. I have worn contacts as long as I can remember. I remember being, I think, younger than even 12 years old, trying to figure out how to take these things, put them on my finger, and then touch my own eyeball. Uh, 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 you know, that was a fearful thing. Now, now I'm at the place where I'm at where sometimes I just don't wear them because I don't like them. I hate them. But all that to be said, my eyes are deteriorating. I am starting to see less clearly than I did before. In this particular passage, though, it's the reverse. We will see here, we have seen, as we've just read, a particular man in Bethsaida. Where is Bethsaida? Bethsaida is the place where Peter, Andrew, and Philip have lived or were living. What's important to know about Bethsaida, if you remember, is that Jesus went into Bethsaida. He tried to perform miracles and speak to the people of Bethsaida, but they would have nothing to do with Jesus because of their lack of faith. And because of their lack of faith, it literally tells us in Mark that Jesus left Bethsaida and basically said, it's under judgment. It will be judged because of their lack of faith. This is the place that Jesus is at. Bethsaida, a place of judgment, a place that God has said, because there is no faith there, it now lies under judgment. Yet somehow, some way, here in Bethsaida, there are people who brought this man to Jesus. Do you see it? If you understand the situation with Bethsaida, you probably have to look and think, you know what? Most likely, this blind guy and his friends who brought him didn't live in Bethsaida. So they bring him probably outside of Bethsaida because they are people of faith. They bring him to Jesus in faith so that he will be healed. And what does Jesus do to open the eyes of this man? He removes him from Bethsaida. Why? Again, it's under judgment. He removes him from Bethsaida and he first and foremost spits in the guy's eyes. Okay, You've been in church too long for you to realize that's not normal, right? Some of you have been reading the Bible so long, you're like, yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> okay, this isn't a normal thing. So we have to ask the question, what is it that Jesus is doing? What is it that, that why? First, the other question you have to ask as you're looking at this is you go, Jesus touched him twice. Why did Jesus spit in his eyes and then touch his eyes? The first time he spit on his eyes, he didn't see clearly. The second time he opened his eyes after touching him. Why is there two phases here? How come this exists? We'll get there in a moment. But when it comes to eyes being opened, when it comes to people coming to faith, our first point this morning is we can... And we should bring hurting people to Jesus. We can and we should bring hurting people to Jesus. Let me kick back on an old doctrine, an old doctrine that, that has folly in it, 
that still exists today. Okay, you can go to these whole uh, places of, of service. You can go to uh, special healers. And if you go to these special healers and you say, heal me, and you're not healed, the teaching that can then progress from that will be, if you only had enough faith to be healed, then you would be healed. And the reason that you're not healed is because of your lack of faith. It's not biblical. If you remember, there was a man who was lowered through the roof by other men, and Jesus' exact words are, because of their faith, your sins are forgiven and you're healed. Because of these men's faith, this is a blind man. How long has he been blind, do you think? We don't know. But we know he wasn't born blind. How do we know he wasn't born blind? Because as he partially sees, he sees people. But he doesn't see clearly. He sees them as trees, moving trees, Lord of the Rings, all over again, right? That's what's occurring here. Here's just something I want you to see. Your faith needs to be awakened, amen, for your own salvation. But sometimes your faith is the sufficient faith for the healing and sometimes to bring the salvation to somebody's soul. It can be your faith that heals somebody. And how dare we ever put that on somebody? You're not healed because of your lack of faith. And then when Jesus talks about specific faith, he says, you don't need large faith. You need faith the size of a mustard seed. Do you remember when we taught about mustard seed? It's an embarrassingly small seed. Jesus chose the mustard seed because it isn't about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And the object of your faith, the thing you hold to, is Christ. Right? If I fall off a cliff, and I'm falling down that cliff, and I have faith to reach out to that branch. It is not my faith that saves me. It's the strength of the branch. You can have faith in an unstable branch, or you can have faith in the rock that is Jesus, that is unmovable and unshakable. And these men, these men brought this man in faith Faith that we don't see in this man. Faith that we didn't see in the man being lowered from the ceiling. It's their friend's faith. So my friends, let us draw others near to Christ. Let us not grow weary in doing good and let us not grow content in doing good. So in faith, they bring this man. Jesus takes this man. He spits in his eyes and then he touches him. But I need you to see what's, what's really interesting about this Hold that for a moment. Just ask yourself the question. I'm not going to answer it yet. Why did he touch him twice? Hold there for a moment. Why did these people bring their friend to Jesus? I think with a little bit more study and a little bit of understanding more of Mark, you can see the answer. And I would argue the answer is because they knew, they saw, they have heard of the great compassion of Jesus Christ. I mean, you, do you remember Mark chapter 6? He went ashore. He saw the great crowd. He was moved with compassion. Mark chapter 8 verse 2, he had compassion on the crowd. This is a guttural feeling is what the word is. They feel it inside. He feels it inside of his guts. Compassion is another way to describe it. would be like empathy. I step into your hurt. I step into your joy. I step into your suffering. And I'm going to be compassionate. Now, why have I made that connection? Well, if you remember, at the end 
of seeing the crowd and having compassion, those verses lead us to Jesus' first response of compassion. How many of you will remember from the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the first thing Jesus did after being moved with compassion? Anyone remember? He taught them. He taught them. The same thing happens here in this text. Look at verse 27. After the healing, he then, Jesus, went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so here he's in one place. He heals the man, two phases. We'll get to, you're still wondering why that happened twice, aren't you? You still asking the question? Let's carry the tension through the sermon so you'll pay attention to me. Okay, let's go. All right. So after the healing, that two-step healing, he then goes to this place called the, the Caesarea Philippi, which is, again, it's another Gentile territory. It's a place of great false worship, but it's enormously beautiful. It actually sits at the foot of Mount Hermon. It is lush. It is gorgeous. Its views are unsurpassed. He takes his disciples off to the side, and he begins to teach them, it says, verse 31. He begins to teach. So Jesus, upon his compassion, is to teach. Okay, follow with me. Remember, remember, it's all back from last week. If you were, weren't here, doesn't matter. It's right there in your Bible in front of you. What was the question asked in verse 21? Do you not understand? The disciples don't get it. Another way to say this, another translation to fit within our theme. Don't you see? Don't you perceive who Jesus is? Don't you understand who Jesus is? No, you don't. Let me give you an illustration. Let me give you a physical parable of sorts. He performs the miracle, then he teaches. What's important to see about the miracle is this. The first time that Jesus touches him, he uses spit. Water, if you will. Water from himself. He touches the man. The man begins to see, but he sees fuzzy. He doesn't see clearly. He sees trees. Do, do you remember at all? When Jesus talks about in order to be born again, you have to be born of the water and you have to be born of the spirit. So there's two major beliefs and ideas of why Jesus did this. The first one is to show the disciples the process the reality of what they're going through and what other Christians will go through. What Jesus is teaching when he says, don't you understand? And then if he goes into verse 31 and he says, uh, um, I'm sorry, verse 27, he then asks the question, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Who does the world perceive me to be? Who does the world see me as? And then who answers the question? Well, they all kind of answer. Some say you're John the Baptist, reincarnated, because he's dead. Some say you're Elijah. Uh, others say you're just another prophet. But then Jesus asks again a specific question. Who do you say that I am? This is the inevitable question I think everybody has to ask this morning. Who is Jesus to you? And here's what happens. This is, guess why Jesus did it in two parts. He did it 
for the benefit of the disciples. Remember the sandwich chain of Mark? The way that Mark layers everything, the way Mark ties everything together, what is he doing? Well, he just talked about the feeding of the 4,000, and, and then he says, don't you understand? There's loaves left over. Then he goes to Bethsaida. He heals this man in two ways, two steps. Then he teaches them. And why is this? Because Jesus is pointing to the reality of what the disciples are going through. They are this blind man, and Jesus is but a fuzzy tree to them. They don't see him clearly. And it isn't until the cross, it isn't until Easter, where Jesus starts to show his disciples and his disciples fully understand Jesus is the Messiah. So who is this, he, this, this man all about? Us. The reality is when we first come to Jesus, and the reality is for many of us, a lot of things about Jesus are but fuzzy. We don't understand them as we should. The disciples don't always understand them. In fact, Corinthians actually says, hey, we see through a glass dark, dim. It's dim, but soon we'll, we'll see in part, we'll see all things. Right now, we, we can't fathom everything that God's doing. We don't see clearly. It's all a little fuzzy. Does anyone feel like spiritually it's a little fuzzy at times? God, what are you doing? God, what's happening in our culture? Why aren't you addressing these issues? Why won't you just Come. Now, when he heals this man the first time, what is it that he sees? He sees light. He sees color. He sees shape. So one belief is, okay, this is to show the process of discipleship. Now, why in the world would I make a connection with fuzzy trees moving into clear trees and discipleship? Well, I left out a piece of text. I didn't read it yet. Let's read it together. Go to verse 30, I can't see, 4. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he then gives us a picture of discipleship. What is discipleship? Fancy word for what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake of the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Okay, do you know what that is? Okay, this is Christianity 101, guys. That's discipleship. This isn't what saves you. What saves you is faith in the object that is Christ. That's why we say as great reformers, we believe in faith alone, in Christ alone. That's sola, right? Sola scriptura, through the Bible alone. We isolate these things. This is where our salvation comes from, Jesus alone. There is salvation in no other. And when Jesus is restoring this man's sight the second time, he moves from color, light, and shape to details, what does the culture say about me? It's fuzzy. It might even be good, right? I mean, what the culture says about Jesus might be good. Well, he's a prophet. That's a good thing. Well, he's a good guy. That's a good thing. But that still is a misrepresentation of who Jesus really is. Jesus is, it tells us right here, uh, I have it circled somewhere. Here it is, verse 31. Take a look at it. When he taught them, because of his compassion? What was it that he taught? 
you're like, we're not supposed to talk in church. He teaches that the Son of Man, he gives a title, and then he gives his function. The Son of Man must suffer. Do you not yet see? Do you not yet perceive? He now teaches them the reality. He's trying to open up their eyes. He's trying to get them to start embracing that really from this continental divide of Scripture, from this point forward, if you will, where other Gospels have communicated, Jesus' face is towards Jerusalem. Another way of saying that is Jesus' face is now set on the cross. He is on a mission to go to the cross. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will get in his way. No one will trip him up. He will march in on a donkey. He will be turned over to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he will be beaten tortured, hung on a cross, shoved in a grave to be forgotten about for eternity evermore. However, we know as Christians, that's not the end of the story. There's this gradual revelation that I love about this man. He looks up, he starts to see people, he starts to see community. Then Jesus gives him clear sight. And that word, so you understand when it says that he could see, the wording there is at a distance. This guy's eyeballs were like perfect, man. No glasses, no contacts, no binoculars. It's a way to say not only has this man's eyesight been opened, but his spiritual eyesight has been opened. He's starting to fully realize who this Jesus is and where we're seeing the two-step process here. We may be seeing what Jesus is doing by the spitting on his eyes and then the touching of his face. We may be seeing Jesus is just massaging this guy to bring this guy's faith out on his own. You can't help but see the compassion of Christ. Takes him by the hand, removes him outside of the city of judgment, touches him, gives him the ability to see. Why? Because his friends were filled with faith. Why? Because Jesus is gracious. And he finally sees. Then Jesus takes the journey back into Gentile territory, back into a place of the backdrop of false idols, false gods. I mean, you name it. And in this place called the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he then sits down with his disciples and he asks them that two-step question. Who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And of course... Who answers the question when it's answered, who do you say I am? Of course it's Peter. Of course it is. Of course it's the first guy who said, you're the Messiah. But the reality of what Peter is saying isn't that he is the Messiah the way that Jesus thinks. How do we know that? The text makes it really clear. Right? You're the Messiah. Jesus says, okay, I'm the Messiah, and I must suffer many things and die. And what does Peter do? He takes... <laughs> Look at the Bible, guys. It's crazy. What did Jesus do with the man that he wanted to heal? He grabbed him by the hand, took him outside of the city, and he healed him. Peter's been watching Jesus. Did he just say he's going to die? I know what to do. Come with me, Jesus. I must take you to the side, just as you took that other poor guy to the side, and I will rebuke you. You see what he's doing? 
He has set up Jesus to be something that Jesus isn't. He has set up Jesus to be the Jesus in his own imagination. He's not the savior that he intended. And he says, he says, what? I rebuke you. Okay, again, Mark is layered. Mark is beautiful. Mark is specific in the Greek he uses. Do you know where else these words have been used? When Jesus rebuked the demons. That's the only place. Jesus rebukes the demons. Jesus rebukes the demons. They're cast out. Then all of a sudden, Peter comes along and goes, I know how to do this. I rebuke you. And so Jesus then rebukes him and tells him, Satan, get behind me. You're the one who doesn't see clearly. Now here's the deal. In order to see clearly, we have to look into the idea of the son of man, that word that's used here. This is language that he's 100% God and he's 100% man. And it's taken, if I remember correctly, from Isaiah chapter seven. This is who Jesus is, the son of man. Where else have we seen this? Just in Mark alone. Chapter one, verse one, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Chapter one, 11, you are my beloved son, he says. Chapter 311, the demons call him the Holy One of God, the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, he is the Most High, the Son of God. Uh, it goes on and on throughout Mark that he is the Son of Man. And it depicts Jesus' humanity, but it also exalts him towards deity. Now, here's what I need you to see. In order to see, you have to accept the hard truth of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It says it really clearly in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, what? Must. The language here is it's God-ordained. It's not accidental. It's on purpose that Jesus himself will take the sting of death that is sin that sting of death, that poison goes into Jesus and not into us. That's incredibly good news. At the cross, we see the law of God meets the grace of God. The judgment of God meets the grace of God as a kiss upon the cross. And Peter can't take it in. He wants Jesus to have a cross, I'm sorry, a crown with no cross. We'll make you king, but you don't have to die. Peter thinks he has a better way. Do you? Do you have a better way to salvation? Are you more compassionate than Jesus Christ? Are you more spirit-filled than Jesus? Are you more blessed and more gifted with spiritual gifts than Christ? No, the answer is absolutely no. None of us are Christ. We are his subjects. We are the created ones. We are the ones that submit ourselves to the Lord and say, don't, don't I ever dare rebuke you, Lord, to do things the way that I want you to do them, but Lord, I shall be rebuked by you to do it the way that you want to do it. You know, what's happening in our little community, in our little church, it's just crazy, man. I mean, we're, we're, no, no one else outside of the Tahoe Basin even knows we exist. But in the Tahoe Basin, like God's using our church. Why? Because we're practicing compassion. The same way Jesus taught and practiced compassion. 
Compassion is empathy. It's stepping into someone's shoes. It's feeling what they feel. And I can tell you that as a pastor, as a leader, the last three weeks have been hard. It's been an emotional up and down. And you want to know why Jesus is so good at meeting compassion? Well, I mean, let's, let's look at this here for a moment. Jesus then begins to define for us after he heals and after he's clarifying for them and he's asking the question, who do you think I am? He then begins, begins to give them an education on what discipleship looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And that's when we get into these really hard pieces of scripture that are hard for us to take in because then he says this to his disciples. Come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. If you save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. What? Death to self. Yesterday, one of our guys in the church said, ultimately what leadership is, I would frame it this way, what, pastoral, what pastoring is, what being a Christian is, is having a higher threshold for pain. It's the ability to carry the heavy weight of all of the struggles of the 700 folks, young and old, that call SBC home. And if it wasn't enough to minister to the broken in the church, we also minister to the thousands that are in the Tahoe Basin. We are, we are subject to Christ and that Christ has called our church to stand firm in the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of God's word. That's who we are. That's who we will always be. That does not shift. It does not go away. But we have to then go into the culture and give that compassion to folks. Feel what they feel. Cry with them. Weep with them. Mourn with them. Hug them. Pray with them. Whoever they are. This guy came to me, the same guy we were talking this about last night. He said, you know what I love about our church? He says, I love how the church ministers to the church and that not everybody's looking to the pastors to do it. That's a sign of maturity. In fact, this same gentleman at the rodeo, I don't know if I said this earlier or not. You have to forgive me if I repeat it. He said, this is the healthiest church I've ever been a part of. Do you want to hear something crazy that's happened in the last six months? This is 100% a real thing. We've had people in the last six months who are unchurched, don't know the Bible. When I say unchurched, they've never walked into a church. You're their first introduction. How do you feel? And they're saying, this is what they're saying. This is like, I have like five people that I, this is true of. So I don't know anything about the church. All I know is I, I'm supposed to find something out about Jesus. And I know that it's supposed to be taught from the Bible. And I'm not lying to you when I say this. I've visited several churches outside of the area, other places. I can't find it. But I'm here. Because I finally have found a place that teaches out of the Bible. Do you know what it's like for me to sit in my office and have a non-Christian who's never even fully met Jesus say, I'm just looking for somewhere to open up the book. 
I'm looking for someone to teach me compassionately the, the true things of the Bible. In fact, one gal in particular who got baptized not that long ago, someone came to her and said, you know you can find a church that'll actually embrace everything that you want to embrace. You know what her response was? I don't want that. That's easy. I want to be somewhere where the Bible's taught. Those are people who've never grown up in church. Where's your hunger at for the word? Where's your heart for scripture? And not just to study and to have knowledge, but to meet this God, this one who has compassion, this one who has the ability to heal you, this one who has the ability to save you. And yes, when you come to him, he will help you see clearly. It won't be fuzzy and you'll be able to follow him, but it's not safe. That's the end of the passage. You think it's all gonna work out for you? Oh, by the way, this is in the backdrop. Have we forgotten when was this gospel written and to who? persecuted Christians under Nero. Your you're seeing your brother, your sister, your cousin, your family, your fellow believer drawn into a lion's den of sorts, drawn into a stadium of sorts, dragged onto a pole, poured wax all over and lit on fire. That's what you're seeing. And then you read this. Well, if I just die, it'll all live. And obviously, we're not talking about just a physical death. If you're going to follow Jesus and help people see clearly, you have got to pick up the cross. And I think this is layered. I think the first part is, this simply means in grace, <laughs> you're hopeless unless you go to the cross. With everything that you have. I mean, you want to know how to have a better marriage? Take it to the cross. Some of you are dating. Some of you are engaged. Some of you are having kids, right? Some of you, you know, you only have so much time left in this life before God calls you home. By God's grace, we're a multi-generational church. We got a lot of poopy pants next door. <laughs> we got a lot of great people here. If we're going to solve the things that need to be solved, if we're going to not just see fuzzy trees, but see Christ and clarity, the process of discipleship is important. And so let's just understand a little bit of Christianity 101. I'm sure John's going to teach some of this in Fundamentals of the Faith. You need to be born again. Once you're born again, you then start the process of sanctification. That's what this is talking about at the end of this verse, the end of this passage. You must die to yourself and pick up your cross. This is what it looks like to obey and honor God. Now that you know that God loves you, you now love God, obey his commandments and die to yourself. That's what it looks like. After sanctification, then comes the blessed news of glorification. What is that? That's heaven. No more decaying body. No more eyes that don't see. Actually, this is a lot better. I'm going to do this. Can't see your reactions as well. Can't, I have no idea what you're thinking. This is tripping me out. I better put them back on here. Let me give you, and we'll close. Let me give you a few things that are important about the dying of self that I think are kind of in this passage. Number one, when you die to yourself, uh, I'll give you two. The self-centered life has to die. When Jesus says, deny yourself, what he is saying is, remove the self 
from the throne of your heart, dethrone self, and put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Let me ask you a question. Do you treasure and value Jesus more than yourself? Do you treasure and value Jesus more than your comforts, more than your aspirations? Have you put to death the idol of self and said yes to Jesus? I mean, can we be really honest? Can we just really be honest and say that over the last uh, however long that our culture has taught, it's all about your comfort. It's all about your creature comfort. It's all about having the food you want, the clothing you want, the shoes you want, the entertainment you want. Everything's on demand. Everything's right now, which means none of us have patience. I mean, one of my frustrations that I have to teach in this room regularly is when a new Christian becomes a Christian and they walk into the room and they start describing things of God. And those of us who've been mature for a while, we're like, you know what you're describing is a fuzzy tree. It's not the real thing. And then we try to shake them. Let's fix the fuzzy tree. Quit trying to fix the fuzzy tree. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. Our job is to preach Christ, preach the word of God, and then to be in relationship with people in such a way that Jesus is in relationship with this man that we, as God sees fit, we take that person from God's point A to wherever God's point B is. But it's gonna require of me to sacrifice my time, to sacrifice my energy, to sacrifice my funds, the money, how we use it, how we spend it. It changes everything. It changes the way we give. It changes the way that we interact with people. It changes our priorities. I mean, this weekend, I've wanted to just entertain myself, but I don't get to just do that. There's too much at stake to just take naps all the time, though... Though we have seen this gospel in Mark mentioned several times, naps are good. <laughs> Everything in balance. Secondly, not only must you deny yourself, you must allow the idea of a safe life to die. There is no such thing for us as Christians as safe. They're safe in his hands. There's no safety in this culture. I mean, church, this is why we teach the Bible because we want to equip you to deal with a world that hates you. Because what does the Bible say? They hated me. They will hate you. I would say that to a certain degree, something's wrong if we don't feel some of that hate. Something's wrong if we're not being somewhat persecuted because of the fact that we won't shut up about Jesus. People do not like the idea that Jesus taught that Jesus is the only way to see God the Father. That's what it teaches. That's what Jesus teaches. Why? No other prophet has died. Oh, wait, that's not true. They've all died. None of them have been raised from the dead. There's only one. There's only one who claimed to be God himself. This is Jesus. Put the self-serving life away and recognize that the gospel life is a life lived for others because that's how Jesus lived, which means we ultimately live for Jesus. And this is Jesus' line here in verses 36 through 38. Okay, 
What if you gain the whole world? You get the girl. You get the guy. You get the money. You get the job. You get the location. You get everything you want, but you lose your soul. We suffer now for a little while so that we can rejoice for eternity. And I think the kicker here is to wrap our minds around what's in verse 33. Set your mind on the things of God, not the things of man. Can we, again, be honest and say, isn't this hard for us to do? I mean, is it hard, like, when you're hungry and you get hangry? Does anyone have the disease of hangriness? Or when you're isolated or when you're tired and you're alone? Isn't it hard to wrap our minds around the things of God? Isn't it hard at times to recognize that God is in the room with me? He cares about me. He's not going to leave me alone. And then lastly, not only do we have to put our minds on the things of God, but verse 38, look at what Jesus says. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. We can't be shameful about our faith. No more apologizing when you uh, pray over your meal at 50-50 brewing. No more apologizing for telling people that you are unembarrassed about your relationship with Jesus because this idea of shame is, the definition of shame is to be embarrassed or guilty of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. How dare you and I ever hide this Christ in the public atmosphere when Jesus hung in the public place for all to see on that road next to Calvary that everyone would see that Jesus died for them. Jesus did not hide. The church should not hide. We should not be guilty because he's removed it. We should not be under this shame and guilt, but rather we should be free under the blessedness of Jesus. It's time, friends, for us to actually live as the church because what what happens when the world is where it's at right now? It starts to just become super hungry for something that's true and something that's legit and something that's real. And then they come into a room like this and they go, there's something here. And it's real. And it's not fake. People are going to start looking at some of you who've been married for a long time and go, what's it like to be married for 10 years? Some of you are going to be like my family and you're going to drag all four kids, all four kids into Costco. And people are going to look at you and go, Mormon, right? <laughs> no. No, I'm not Mormon. You're Mormon. <laughs> Why? Because it's the same thing that happened in the first century. Same thing happened in the gospel, Mark. I'm telling you right now, and we'll close. The gospel blew up because when Jesus came, the culture was just like this one. Materialistic, all about sensuality and sex, money, right? And, and I can tell you in the last three weeks, I've been praying with people in the community, speaking with institutions and professionals. And you know what? Every time this happens, something like this happens in our community that's devastating. 
it always becomes real clear as day as I'm in these secular places that are trying to solve these problems and these issues in our culture. How do we help our kids? How do we help our parents help their kids? How do we, how do we help parents become mature parents? How do, we, how do we do this? And you know the culture has zero answer to deal with it because the only answer that works is the heart of stone has to be removed and a heart of flesh has to be put in there. You are hopeless to change culture without a new heart. And there's only one who can do it. And it's the God who takes our vision and turns it from fuzzy trees to clear as day. Ah, now I see who you are, Jesus. And this gal who recently just gave her life to Christ, I said, what's it like now that you're saved? She said, scripture now makes sense to me when I read it. That's the spirit. He gives you understanding for you to open up the word of God on your own and go, That's what my whole week is like. Just so you know, I'm in the back office just going, whoa. I'm just kidding. It's a lot harder than that. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray. Ah, Lord, you're so good that I just fail every week at communicating that. And I want to, Lord, so desperately to to place you in front of the eyes of our people that they find you glorious. And I know that I can't do that on my own. It's, it's what you do. You're the one who builds your church. None of us are perfect. So Lord, we lean in to, the, to you, the one who is perfect, and we ask you to do what you've already been doing, Lord. We've been praying I know my wife and I, we've been praying for this kind of life in a church for, for years. Thank you that we've been able to see fruit of that labor. Lord, like this man, I know there are more people that we need to reach out to and say, would you come with me and would you meet my Savior? Would you meet Jesus? Would you come see of the same compassion I've experienced? So, Lord, would you help us see clearly? But would you use us and our faith to bring others to you that they would see clearly as well? We trust you for that work. In Jesus' name, amen.